while we are hoping, like, I've, like, like we've mentioned already today, that this has been a great time for you so far, that you've really been taking the opportunity to connect with your God, maybe in a brand new way. Maybe it's been a while since you really have felt his presence like this. And, and that's our prayer for you. And we're here to support you in that faith journey, wherever you are in that journey. And we want to be there for you. And, and just let us know. And we will walk with you side by side, arm in arm, hand in hand, and we will be there for you. Well, I'm excited about this new series that we are beginning here today. We're beginning a series that I am calling Beyond the Ruins. And this series is going to take us through the book of Isaiah. And and we're going to be looking at throughout this book over the next six weeks. And you're probably thinking, Bill, six weeks for Isaiah? Are you crazy? Well, some people have said I am a little bit. Um, Obviously, we know the depth and the length of Isaiah. It's a big book. And to go through it in six weeks, we're just going to be touching on major points throughout it. Isaiah is a book found in the Old Testament. Um, It's one of the prophetic books that we have in the Bible. Isaiah, in this time, he lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period. Now, this kingdom period was a period where God actually raised up kings, and then the kingdoms eventually divided. And there were, because of that, there were all these different kings, and most of these kings were evil. And it wasn't really a great time during that time from a spiritual perspective. But, however, during these times, um, from an economic perspective, uh, it was going pretty well at times, actually, for them. Financially, things were well. Economically, things were well. Spiritually, not so much at all when these kingdoms divided. And during the period where Isaiah was a prophet, King Uzziah was the king of Judah. And he had this very long, prosperous reign there. And under his leadership, Israel prospered politically, Israel prospered militarily, and economically. But as often was the case with influence and affluence comes arrogance. And that was extremely true here in this case, and in this period where Isaiah lived. There was this growing sense of arrogance in the nation of Israel towards God and even the covenant that God established with his people. This arrogance that was starting to rise up and being part of their identity of a nation resulted in disobedience. This arrogance resulted in idolatry. This arrogance resulted in self-centeredness. And really at this time, people primarily were looking out for number one. They were looking out for themselves. We can kind of relate, I guess, to where our world is today and our culture and what our society keeps on telling us how we need to live. It kind of sounds like this, doesn't it? This arrogance and this disobedience was most visible in this time in the leaders of Israel. They were corrupt. They were unjust. They oppressed the poor. 
So what did God do? God rose up Isaiah to speak on his behalf to the leaders of Israel and to confront their idolatry, their injustice, and their oppression. The book of Isaiah is basically um, broken up into two sections. Now granted, they are two really big sections. The first section that Isaiah has broken up is, is chapters 1 to 39. And in that first section between those chapters, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it basically is focused on God's judgment. And more importantly, his judgment against Israel. Isaiah constantly is warning Israel's leaders that there are these great empires out there and they're going to get stronger and stronger and they're going to come and they're coming after us. They're going to come and they're going to conquer Israel. They're going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and they're going to leave it in ruins. And he says, and after that, they're going to take the people away in exile. That was his constant warning in these first 39 chapters. There was this warning as part of the message. But as Isaiah reminds them during all this, God is also going to redeem them. God's going to redeem this like God always does, right? He's going to use this to restore Israel and to bring them back and make them even more compassionate and more of a just nation. So that's kind of what takes place. That's kind of chapters 1 to 39 in a nutshell. The second section in, in Isaiah is, is found in chapters 40 to 66, to the end of the book. And that's, this section is basically a message of hope. A hope that reminds them that even though they're going through all of this, this strife and this pain and this destruction that God has not abandoned them at all. That one day, he tells them, this exile will be over and God will fulfill his covenant to his people. That God will rise up a brand new king that will reign and rule over Israel. In other words, there is, what he is referring to in this second section is this. Really what he is saying is that there is life beyond the ruins. Yeah, you are experiencing this, this destruction and this pain, and it's just like your life and, your, and what you knew of your nation is ruined, but he is saying there is life beyond the ruins, and that really is the message of Isaiah, to be honest. Um, it's a message I think all of us need to hear because sometimes it feels like you're living in the midst of the ruins, right? Maybe because of this pandemic. You feel like you're living in the ruins. Maybe you're experiencing some sort of injustice in your life and it feels like you're just living in these ruins. Maybe it's because some decisions you have made or maybe even some physical or relational or financial stuff that you're dealing with and it just feels like your, your life is ruined and you're just living within these ruins. Whatever it is, is just like the Israelites. And just like them, you as well wonder, is there life beyond the ruins? Is there hope 
beyond the ruins, beyond the chaos. Near the end of King Uzziah's reign, Assyria begins to start to flex its muscles. And they begin their way to go to conquer uh, Israel. Before that, they, they have, it has been noted and people know that they've been conquering nation after nation after nation and after nation. And now it's Israel's turn. And they're coming for Israel. And on their way to conquer Israel, King Uzziah dies. And because of that, Israel is now left in chaos and crisis. And even though Isaiah had been telling the leaders that this was going to happen, now that the crisis is imminent, Isaiah, for himself, he's looking for some strength. He's looking for some comfort. He's looking for some direction to help deal with the crisis that he finds himself and his nation finds themselves in. And he finds that in chapter 6. And that's where we're starting here today. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1, this is what we read. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says this. He says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were all calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. As Israel is facing this incredible national and even cultural crisis, Israel has, I mean, Isaiah has this vision, this amazing vision of God seated on the throne in the temple, surrounded by all of these heavenly creatures. And the very first thing Isaiah says is, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. And when he sees the Lord, Isaiah is brought face to face with the holiness of God. Now, in the Hebrew and the Aramaic languages, the way that you emphasize a word is by repeating it. So if you want to get your point across, if you'd want to emphasize or repeat that word, and you see that, we see words being repeated throughout Scripture. For example, right off the top of my head, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I tell you, right? Or truly, truly, I tell you. He did that because he was emphasizing his point, he was letting his audience know, what I'm about to say, you need to tune into this. You need to focus and you need to pay attention. And we see this, this throughout all scripture, words like that being repeated. But nowhere in the Bible is any attribute of God repeated, repeated three times like it is here in Isaiah by the by the angels saying, holy, holy, holy. These heavenly creatures, they're emphasizing something, right? They're emphasizing the holiness of God. So I want to spend some time just reflecting on that, reflecting on some things I think that will teach us about the holiness of God. The first thing is this, God's holiness is not boring 
or predictable. God's holiness is not boring or predictable. Now, in some churches, you may have an experience in this church. I had a slight experience in this church growing up, and it wasn't like really there in your face, but if you kind of read between the lines and reflecting back, you can see a little bit of it. But there are some churches, the way in which holiness is presented, it's actually boring and predictable. That if you are a follower of Jesus and you want to live this holy life, your life has to be boring and predictable. Because that's what pleases God. Right? That's kind of the message that some churches present regarding the holiness of God. It's basically defined by the things that you could not do, the things you were not allowed to do. That's how they presented holiness. Right? You know, like in the, not just in the Baptist church, but in a lot of churches, right? You weren't, to live a holy life, you definitely weren't allowed to dance. You weren't allowed to play cards. You weren't allowed to go to the movie theater, right? You know, things like that. That's, you know, how sometimes I think at times churches presented holiness, like don't do that because that's not holy. Right? That stuff doesn't please God. Well, not doing those things might make life boring or predictable. That was okay because boring and predictable pleased God. That's how it was presented, right? And I was thinking about that this week. That it's interesting that most creators of fiction in our culture, whether it's in movies or, or TV shows, basically have the same theology as some of these churches because the characters they create are the most fascinating, layered, complex, uh, multi-dimensional of the characters that actually have a little bit of a dark side, that have a little bit of evil in them. And I think of some of really good movies and shows, even the uh, protagonist, the hero, there was you know, a little bit of evil in them, right? See, the good characters are usually portrayed a little flatter, you know, one-dimensional. In fact, if you want the hero to be more fascinating, basically you need to give them a few bad character traits, right? Maybe a bad habit, maybe a moral flaw. The idea being that it's this dark stuff, not the good stuff, that really makes them more interesting. And I have to say, in real life, I think, I think just the opposite is actually true. In real life, it's actually holiness that creates fascinating, multidimensional, creative people. In real life, it's the ones who stand with the oppressed and the marginalized that are fascinating. It's the ones who are selfless, who give away their time and their money to make this world a better place that are fascinating. See, in real life, it's actually evil that is flat and kind of one-dimensional and boring. See, God's holiness does not make him boring. His holiness is what makes him fascinating and unpredictable. In fact, throughout Scripture, you see this holy God doing things that really no one expects him to do. Right? We see him creating this fascinating, multidimensional world. We see him actually taking on flesh and actually entering into his into this world. We see this holy God hanging out with the wrong people, right? At the wrong times, 
in the wrong places. We see him walking on water. We see him riding a donkey. We see him raising people from the dead. We see him breaking traditions. We see him laying down his life and then rising from the dead. Definitely not boring stuff. Definitely not predictable for sure, right? And when Isaiah saw God's holiness, it definitely wasn't boring to him. He saw God surrounded by these seraphs, right? Angels with six wings, two of them covering their faces, two of them covering their feet, and two of them for flying around with. Definitely, that vision was not boring. And here's the thing, living a holy life, living a holy life may not always be easy. Living in this yes position to God may take you into difficult situations, difficult places, and difficult tasks. But it will never be boring, right? For those of us that may have followed Christ for some time, and even some of us that haven't even been following him for that long, if you're fully in and you're living that, I probably can say it probably hasn't been boring, Right? The holy life that we are called to live, it's fascinating, it's multidimensional, and it's definitely unpredictable. It will lead you to places that you never thought or even imagined that you would go to. That's what the holy life does. So God's holiness is not boring, and it's definitely not predictable. God's holiness also, we see in this vision and this encounter with God, God's holiness leads us to repentance. His holiness leads us to repentance. Listen to what Isaiah says. Verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me! I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with, with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. When Isaiah here comes face to face with the holiness of God, it actually changes his focus. It completely changes his focus. Up to this point, he had been solely focused on how corrupt the leadership of Israel was. That's what he was really focused on up to this point. But when he comes face to face with the holiness of God, something else happens. The light gets turned inward. And he begins to see his own corruption. He sees it in a way that he has never seen it before. And it causes him to cry out, woe to me. I am ruined. My lips are unclean too. The Greek phrase translated as I am ruined literally means this, I'm falling apart. That's what he was betraying with what he was saying. I'm 
falling apart. I love how the King James Version translated what he said. In the King James, it says, I am undone. I am undone, he says. The holiness of God has destroyed me. It has devastated me. I'm undone by the holiness of God. And here's what's interesting in all this. In the midst of this crisis, Isaiah was looking to God primarily just for a little comfort, right? For a little direction, a little help to get him through the crisis, to get him through the ruins, to, to help Israel get them through it. And, what, and especially what he was dealing with. He wasn't necessarily expecting God to show up in a way that would actually bring him face to face with his own sin. He was not expecting that. That's not what he was looking for. What he was looking for was just comfort, maybe some direction, maybe some inspiration. And I think a lot of us are like Isaiah in that sense. When we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis, what we tend to look to God for is a little inspiration, a little help, a little direction, a little comfort. We're not really expecting God to show up, right? At least not in a way that actually brings us face to face with our own sin, with our own brokenness. And when God shows up, we're, we're not quite sure what to do with all of that, right? See, coming into the holy presence of God does the exact same thing for us as it did for Isaiah. It leads, it leads us to repentance. It turns the light inward and allows us to see what is really going on in the inside. Not so we can wallow in guilt or shame, but so we can repent and actually be set free. You see that with Isaiah, first he is certain that he's going to be destroyed by the holiness of God, that he's actually undone by the holiness of God, but he is not destroyed. He is cleansed. He is forgiven. He is set free, actually, by the holiness of God. And when that burning coal touches his lip, it says his guilt was taken away and his sins atoned for. Here's the principle in this. If you are never convicted by your sin, you will never be set free from your sin. That's the principle in this. If you are never convicted by your sin, then I'm telling you, you will never be set free from your sin. If you ignore your sin, if you bury it, if you pretend it's really not a big deal, if you just try to get through life, setting all of that aside, that you will actually never really be set free from your sin. Repentance leads to freedom. That sometimes we want to experience the freedom that is actually ours in Christ. We, that is ours, rightly ours in Christ, our freedom. But too many times we want to experience or feel we can experience that freedom without repentance, without the conviction of our sin, without actually dealing with our brokenness. See, it's repentance that leads to forgiveness and freedom. It's the willingness 
to actually turn, to confess, and be willing to... And just be willing to run from it that leads to setting us free in our life. So God's holiness will always lead us to repentance. And lastly, God's holiness actually gives us our voice. God's holiness gives us our voice. It's no coincidence that the burning coal that the angel took from the altar and placed on Isaiah's lips were placed where they were placed. There's no coincidence of that. It was with his lips that Isaiah had repented of his sin, but it's also with his lips that Isaiah was going to continue to proclaiming God's message to the people of Israel. There's this connection that we see here in the story between repentance and proclamation, between repentance and mission, between repentance and finding our voice. In a very real sense, it's Isaiah's willingness to repent that gives him his voice and allows him to live out his calling. Here's the principle in that. You cannot accomplish everything God wants to do through you unless you allow God to accomplish what he wants to do in you. That's the principle. You can't accomplish everything that God wants to do through you unless you first allow God to accomplish what he wants to do in you. The mission that God had for Isaiah was not an easy mission. Listen to his mission here. Starting in verse 8, he says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Then I said, well, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away in the land is utterly forsaken. God's telling Isaiah, this is the mission that you're going on. He's sending Isaiah to a group of people who will never listen to anything he has to say. Feels like being a parent, doesn't it? Especially parents of teenage kids, right? That's exactly what it looks like, right? And God even warns them that his message will actually harden their hearts. So by any normal metric, Isaiah's ministry will never be successful. He will experience rejection after rejection after rejection. And what does Isaiah say about all of that, knowing that? He says, sign me up. Here am I. Send me to go do that. Now, knowing that that was his mission, what would give someone this kind of confidence to take on that kind of mission? Knowing that they're going to be rejected over and over and over again, that no one is going to pay attention or listen to anything you have to say. What would make someone so secure with their own voice that even without any of these normal affirmations that all of us really truly depend on, to keep speaking out 
to not lose his voice. It's because Isaiah was allowing the holy God to do something in him so God could do something through him. That's what was going on. When we ask God to do something with us without allowing God to do something in us, first there is all kinds of implications. We get discouraged easier. We give up quicker. We become overly dependent on the affirmation of others. When we ask God to do something through us and don't allow him to do something in us, we become overly dependent on the affirmation of others. We try to do things on our own strength. And we become more focused on our gifts than on the giver of those gifts. And through that, we lose our courage. We lose our voice. Right? We lose our courage to use the voice that God has given us to advance his kingdom. And you know what? Just like Isaiah, God has given you a voice as well. It's not a voice to condemn. It's not a voice to shame. It's not a voice to say, hey, sinner, or here's your sin. You need to do something or you're going to hell. That's not the voice that God has given us. But too many times we fall into that. He's given you a holy voice. He's given you a righteous voice. It's a just voice. It's a compassionate voice. It's a voice that's not shaped by this world, but by God's holiness. It's a voice that's important. It's a voice that needs to be heard. It's a voice that cannot be drowned out. But if you want your voice to reflect God's voice, to truly advance the kingdom of God, then you first need to allow God to do something in you so that he can do something through you. You've heard me say this for years, right? Here it is in Isaiah, right? And that's what I want us to reflect on today. What is it? What is it that God wants to do in you right now so that he can do something through you right now? What is that? What is it that you need to confess? What is it that maybe you need to repent of? What is it that you need to surrender to him? What is it that you need to lie down right here, right now? So what is it? What is it that God wants to do in you so that he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish through you? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to connect with you. We thank you for your word and just reminding us and giving us this amazing, powerful picture of your holiness. And I just pray that we will just live this out in our life, that we allow your holiness to lead us to repentance, that we allow your holiness to give us a voice in a world that needs to hear it. And we thank you that as we live this holy life, that it is not boring, it, it is not predictable, but it's fascinating, it's creative, it's multidimensional. So I pray that you just reveal these things to us here today so we can live this holy life with confidence and courage on your behalf.